Guys, welcome back to the Relax Running Podcast. Glad to have you here. Always more enjoyable knowing someone's listening to the podcast than just recording them for my own enjoyment. Today's guest is a, is an absolute gun. His name is Tony Sefton, and he's the strength and conditioning coach of my good friend and two-time Olympian, Dave McNeil. I was really keen to start getting in touch with more of these strength and conditioning coaches because you guys have been asking to hear more about the strength side of running. And it's something that I'm really keen to learn more about myself. I'm really fascinated by it, and I feel like it's become a topic of interest in my own life over the last couple of years. So this episode did not disappoint. I was I was really happy. He reminds me a lot of a bloke like John Quinn. So if you're a, a regular here at the Relax Running Podcast, you know all about exercise physiologist John Quinn. But uh, but what, what I like so much about Tony Sefton, the guest today, is he makes everything so relevant. You hear some sports science guys talking, you're like, mate, just can you just talk in my language? I don't know what you're saying. Tony is obviously, uh, he's a wealth of knowledge and he's put in years and years and years of research in various sports, uh, more than various, in heaps of different sports. And he's able to boil down the uh, the science he talk into into my kind of language. So I asked him about the importance of strength and conditioning. I wanted to find out about the most important exercises that distance runners can use to develop a, a strong core and a strong power off the ground and everything else that a distance runner needs to be strong in. And he didn't disappoint. We also recorded a bonus little feature with him giving some more specific instructions to distance runners on uh, developing a more individualized strength and conditioning program, which is now available on the Relax Running membership if you're not a member yet, uh, or if you haven't even checked it out, go and check it out, guys. I'm starting to get excited about it. I've been excited about it for a while, but I feel like my excitement is actually justified now. <laughs> we've, it's starting to come together. We've got, uh, let me just give you an overview. So we've got a whole range of different training programs from 5K, 10K, half marathon, marathon, a 28-day challenge for the new runners, five days of 5Ks, 10 days of 10Ks, and I'm just about to publish in the next week or two uh 30-day beginner runner program. So if you wanted to go and check it out, relaxrunning.com slash distance members, you get a three-day free trial. If you're not a fan of it after that, guys, just leave. You won't be charged anything. Um, uh, just go and have a look, see if it's uh, see if it's something that you're interested in though. So let me get out of the way. Oh, before, I just want, want to justify, I'm recording this on my iPhone because long story short, my wife and I have recently moved houses and uh, don't have internet yet. So all my internet computer stuff is at a friend's house where I've recorded this podcast. So the podcast audio is beautiful. I've got my Blue Yeti mic and uh, Tony Sefton has his little setup, which sounds just fine. So in case you were wondering what's going on with the audio today, this one's coming through my iPhone. But as soon as the intro music is done, it is just back to good quality audio. So hey, look forward to that. But let me get out of your way. Uh, Enjoy this conversation with myself and strength and conditioning coach, Tony Sefton. Too easy. Well, I, as we just mentioned before I uh, got in touch with you, I was having a chat to Dave McNeil, who I don't know if you realize he's a regular on the podcast. And I, I was telling him that I was really keen to start catching up with some more strength and conditioning coaches because especially in the distance running scene, it's um, uh, though people are aware of the fact that it's beneficial, I think, to their running, I, I'm not convinced there's a, a whole heap of knowledge of how to structure a lot of the 
strength work, um, you know, from weights to, to body work and stuff like that. And he, uh, he goes, mate, I've got just the man for you. And he, uh, he said he, he said he would have a chat to, uh, to yourself, which he did, but I was, I was interested to, to hear how you and uh, Dave started working together. Yeah. So Dave, um, was obviously studying at Melbourne university and that's my place of work. And, uh, he had the opportunity through a scholarship to, to work with myself. Um, and, when that was provided to him in the early stages, he decided not to take it up. He was doing his own thing. And um, I, it's really funny about your work that you do always seems to get recognized. And I obviously work with Katrina Bissett as well. And I've worked with her right the way through from when she came to Melbourne. And, and obviously, she's now broken the Australian record and stuff. So through that association, it was like, oh, he thought there might be an interesting, I'll come and have a word with him, see what it, see what it goes, see what he's got to come up with and how he can help me. And I think really early on, we struck up a, a really good relationship in understanding that the the whole way of coaching for anything that you do is all about relationship. And I understood that David is a, a well-established athlete, knows a lot about his body. So I don't need to come in there and start saying, right, I know what you need to do. Just follow this. So we work very much in a consultancy way, using his knowledge, my ideas, discuss them, chuck some out put some stuff in and uh, we just seem to have been working quite well from there so it's um yeah it's good it's good fun I, I love working with David he's a great man so um and obviously because he listens to this he probably quite enjoy the fact I've said that so uh, I've got to be careful of what I say <laughs> yes well based on the fact he listens to this I'm going to back you up and say he is a great man a really good fella <laughs> no he is there's not too many people in the world who I've ever met who have any problems at all with uh with Dave and and I know how I Man, we I've raced Dave or I've ran alongside Dave for literally twenty years now. Like I, I finished up my running career about six or seven years ago and I think we got into it at around about the same age and we we're fairly competitive for the first couple of years and then he just took things to a new new level and, and after a couple of years away I sort of just looked back and I would read some of his articles and I would watch some of the videos and stuff and I just admired the the, the professional approach that he had towards his um, towards his running. So I was really curious just to, to pick your brains about. So when he, when he first decided to, to come to you and start getting a little bit of distance running guidance, um, I was curious to know how, how you decide where to start because I know you're not exclusively distance running. I was having a sneak peek at your um, LinkedIn profile just before I called and I, I saw you had done quite a lot of work with the elite level soccer teams back in yep. the UK. Um, but... Like John Quinn, I feel like there's so many overlaying factors, uh, whether it's just through movement and strength, that seem to apply beautifully to different sports. Is there sort of a general process that you go through with specific athletes to find out any weak points and any focus points that you need to get stuck into? Yeah, um, I'm very heavily set on um, movement. Unfortunately, um, from a from a trying to pass that information on it all comes under your coaching eye and um i've seen i've spent some time with um watching dan path do some of the stuff he does with the sprint coaches and his coaching eye is just sensational in picking it up so that's one of the things that i really trust is when we look at gymnastics for instance you know what beautiful movement like you don't need to be an expert in gymnastic movements to know that looks elegant that looks powerful that looks flexible and stuff like that so when I started with David, um, the entry point was why did he, what was he, what was he looking for? So looking at it from almost like a reverse engineering procedure. So it's not, what do you need to do to be a good runner? It's well, what do you want to get at the end? What is it that you're searching for that then we then work backwards to then know what to do? So it's always outcome led. It's not, here comes an athlete. They are a soccer player. So this is how you train a soccer player. So it's all very individualized. 
it's interesting with David when he first came to me, he said that he wanted to build a bit of strength, bounce back from some of the injuries that he'd had or that were ongoing or little niggles that he had, and then wanted to go down the line of um, plyometrics, rate of force development to get that application through the feet. And straight away, I sort of looked at David's stature and look at where he was at in his career and what his goals were. And I went, the length of time it's going to take us to put that emphasis into your training and to get you into this thing to be able to get the transfer maybe we're maybe that's not what you really want to do maybe your performance is going to come from consistency of running out on the track being able to turn up to training session recover well and and be able to maintain uh, a fit athlete and I sort of very quickly was able to just change his mindset of saying actually we're going to look at your program of being very specific to the outcome of what we want which is a non-injured athlete that can back up the load of training um, on the track rather than trying to create this something in the gym that's going to just make him run faster and more consistent, which for me, I'm not a big believer in that the gym is the most important part in a runner's program. Yeah, well, that's interesting because I, I can't remember if I was recording when I said it to you, but I feel like there's a, a little misconception and it's one that I've been stuck in for a long time that when you say gym training or a strength program, immediately people think of the bench press or yeah. they'll think of the squat rack which yeah. I'm sure has their place, but I, I, I can imagine for a bloke in your position who's heard that for as many years as you, ha- you can, it, it, I don't know, it must be frustrating just to, to see that misconception. Like, uh, is, there, is there any way to, to generalise or to, to um, sort of be able to figure out? I'm, I'm, it's interesting because I try and make this as relevant as I can to so many people in the audience. And I know from what I've heard, there's people from all different levels, whether they're brand new and beginning and they just want to get started with some kind of strength program or, or someone like Dave um, who would tune in just thinking, okay, like, is there any way that I can refine it? And I know it's uh, it's something I get stuck on speaking to Quinny about it as well because I know it's not a one-size-fits-all answer. But, um, like, how do you distinguish whether someone's needs a little bit more work in the gym on those squat racks and on the bench press and things like that as a distance runner or whether they could do with some more body weight work and stability work um, which is going to allow it to be more beneficial. I know you touched on it saying that you're more outcome-led, but I was wondering for anyone out there who might be trying to decide for themselves without the professional sort of guidance if there was anything they could look out for. There's definitely a starting point in that uh, if we went down to the most basic form, uh, a stronger athlete, if everything else is equal, will beat a weaker athlete. So if you are trying to achieve something within your performance where you feel there might be a breakdown in posture. Your coach is a very good person to turn around and say, yeah, we need to work on this. Your application of um, your stride length, it might be your posture when you're tired completely changes. So that will give us some of the indications of um, what we need to do. But first off, everyone would benefit if they could squat, lunge, push, pull, press, brace and rotate. So if you were doing nothing else, you could pick one exercise from each one of those categories, do those um, twice a week, um, three sets of 10, just very simple, and lift to a weight that you move well. That would make you a better athlete straight away. It doesn't have to be technical, not trying to get plyos or anything else in. That would just make you a little bit stronger, make you a little bit more robust, will enable you to recover from sessions better because the muscles have become trained in that way. And it won't build muscle and it won't make your running, you know, it's not going to change your stance or the way that you apply. It's just good general condition. That's actually for all human beings, to be honest. You don't even have to be a runner from that. Once you've then got that idea that 
you can feel the benefits of feeling stronger. Then we can then get into the other aspect of, okay, there are some movement patterns that would benefit you. But I mean, I, I've looked at, um, I, Peter Coe wrote a book called uh, Distance Running, and it's a book that was probably written in the 80s. And he did this uh, videography of Sebastian Coe breaking the world record for the, um, for the 1500 meters and had his body position every time he crossed the start and finishing line. And one of the things that you notice about that is that geez, these, his posture would just remain so consistent. And um, I know from reading the book, uh, you know, Sebastian Coe was massively into strength conditioning. He had like a, a 90 to 100K squat. Now, I'm not saying you need to do that to um, become a world-class athlete, but there are ones that don't do any strength and there are ones that strength. And that then comes down back to that individualization. But I think everybody would benefit from just being a bit stronger. So it is very, very simple. Squat, lunge, push, press, pull, brace and rotate. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned Sebastian Coe. Actually, I was just watching. A, I posted a new YouTube video on yes, uh, a new YouTube video up yesterday of my five favorite running documentaries or movies. Yeah. And uh, one of those documentaries you might have seen it was called uh, I think it's Born to Run. Yes. And yeah, yeah. Uh, I was I was looking at the way he runs, and, and it's interesting you point out his technique because he's such a smooth runner, isn't he? And yeah. uh, I didn't realize he was so strong, but it, it doesn't surprise me. You say he was such a, a strong man in the gym because you, you see him run, you go, hang on a second, you, you're doing something right there. But what I what I love, uh, Tony, about what you, what you mentioned here is I, I'm a massive fan of simplicity. Now that could just say something more about my character, but I know <laughs> I know the I know what you and uh, the likes like Quinny know, and I know that there's a lot of science behind it. But to be able to boil that down and put it in sort of layman's terms, it's it just makes it so much more relevant, makes it so much more understandable. And I think uh, it gives me more confidence that I actually know what I'm doing. And one thing that I, I seem to keep noticing through speaking to people like yourself is that it, it seems to come down to just learn to use your body in the way that it was created to be able to move. And um, I spoke to a bloke from the States who he has a YouTube channel called The Run Experience. And he seems very heavily involved and interested in just what I said there, learning to use your body in the most effective way. Um, and he seems to think that a lot of the problems that come up is is due to like the sedentary lifestyle that so many of us live in. Like whether we're a distance runner or an elite athlete, so many of us will spend eight hours behind a computer hunched over and then get up and be like, all right, now it's time to move efficiently. And yeah. he thinks it's just not a, a really effective way. Is, is that a big factor in um, some of the limitations that you see with the athletes you're working with? I'd say in the last, uh, say in the last 10 years of working, there's, you, you can follow the patterns of programming where you go your general preparation and then you go into your specialization, general strength, and then performs and then go into uh, the final phase into competition. What I've noticed with a lot of the athletes that have come through in the last 10 years is because they're not, there's early specialization has really occurred across most disciplines and most sports that they are becoming more skillful in the event that they do, but they don't have that rounded athletic ability because they haven't played a winter sport and a summer sport and played two different sports or played, you know, those variations that um, I think they probably did as a kid. I just remembered I played everything. And again, I was a very average athlete, so I'm not going to say that I'm the benchmark on this, but because I played a lot of sports, I, was, I could pretty much put my hand to anything. If I was then had a, a talent and that could then be channeled into a specialization. I think that's the perfect model. 
what I've noticed from an S&C point of view in the last 10 years is I'm having to, to sort of add the broad base. So it's almost like the pyramid. A lot of the, um, the broad base of a pyramid skill set is decreased in our current at younger athletes coming through. So the S&C is not about trying to put more of the, the specifics and the things that really affect performance. It's actually just trying to make the athletes have a little bit more skill set across the board. Um, and I, and I see that's, you know, like when you get a coach and they're specialized in AFL or they're specialized in running or whatever, I see myself in terms of the title, it's very much conditioning based is where I have to do a lot of my work. And there's very few opportunities to really get into the specialized stuff because there's so much still to tick off. And I put that down at that I don't, I think there's too much early specialization in sport these days. That means that the, the athletes aren't that well rounded. Yeah. So meaning what the kids who are performing at an elite level uh, or who might've just made it, their move into the AFL have been too focused on that one sport for too many years. Yeah. And, the, and if you look at the level of injuries that they're coming out, when you start doing um, specialized specific training for a sport with a younger athlete, um, they're more prone to getting adult what used to be like ACL injuries used to be an adult based injury and and now we're getting kids of 12 and 14 blowing an ACL and it's like that that shouldn't be happening they and and I think it may be we're doing too many structured movement patterns um, that basically means that when you take them slightly outside of that movement pattern they're very vulnerable because they they haven't learned to move in different sports in different ways that's really interesting. I, after my uh, running career, I moved across to play some Aussie rules football. And I was, I used to love it when they said, okay, we'll do the 3K time trial because <laughs> that was my, uh, that was my movement pattern that had been well established for years. But then we got out to, uh, to doing some agility tests and I thought, oh my God, like, <laughs> I don't think I've had to take a sidestep in 15 years. And it was a, thank God I didn't do any ACLs, but it was definitely a, uh, a slow turnaround. So um, where do you even begin with someone like that? Because I'm sure there'd be people listening who are thinking, oh, wow, okay, I've been a runner for 20 years. Um, and if this can even improve me slightly to, you know, be able to develop my ability to move effectively in other ways, is it too late once it's been established? Or are there sort of some breakdown patterns that you can um, put into practice to, I guess, rebuild that, um, I don't know what you call it. I hate the word holistic, but that, that broader movement pattern. Yeah, look, there's, I mean, if you jump on the internet and you just put in like, um, like uh, primal movements, you'll see all these people crouching around on the floor doing um, bear crawls and, and all that stuff. And, and I'm a massive believer that that is a, a really good fundamental way of training. It's not going to be everyone's cup of tea. And so you just have to, but you just look at, this is the way that if you look at the way that children can sit in a deep squat, <laughs> for instance, and they can hold that, there's no restrictions around the hips. The chair, as we get older, basically takes away that flexibility and stuff like that. So, you know, it is about just getting out there and moving and moving in different ways. That's why the squat is such a, a fundamental movement pattern for most training programs, because it does a full body workout in terms of from your legs, getting your hips to move, creating, getting rid of some of the stiffness that the body has. So I would just suggest it's never too late. You've, there's studies shown that you can improve your strength right up into your 70s and 80s under a well-structured program. I know there's, um, I did a little bit of work with um, one of the old age uh, centers that I used to be close to in England, and it was they having a lot of their um, patients were falling. So we just did some simple getting up out of your chair training and, and found that it wasn't the squat pattern, but it was actually um, tricep um, extensions and tricep dips because that's what you use 
to get them to stand up when you get old. So making their upper bodies just a little bit stronger, it decreased the amount of falls that they were having in the, in the next year, which was a really nice thing for me to be able to just go in and identify where the strength need was. And I think that's, that's what I enjoy about my job. It's not coming to that there's any particular program. It's looking at the individual, what is it they want, and then constructing it, what I believe would help them make them better. Yeah, it's interesting you brought that up about the elderly because I've at the moment, I've got a, a six-month-old, little Charlie, and yep. he's in the process of getting up on his hands and knees and trying to crawl. And the So he can get up on his knees, but the only thing that looks like it's really blocking him is when he goes to move, his arms just don't seem as, as though they're developed enough to be able to yep. hold him up. And I keep saying to my wife, I'm like, all right, once we get those, I actually said, like, once we get his little triceps up and running, he's going to be, <laughs> a, he's going to be a hard man to stop. So it's, uh, yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting observation that it's a, a, um, an issue for the elderly as much as it is for like a, a newborn kid. Yeah, I, I think um, I've got two children, they're 10 and 8 now, but I remember when they were younger, looking at them and thinking how I could fast track them to walk or to fast track them to play sport and stuff. And my advice on that is just whatever your job is, remain the parent and don't try and speed track. Because you know what, when I think it was a comedian I once heard that said there's very few three-year-olds or five-year-olds who can't walk or can't talk. So no matter, you know, you get that proud moment that your son's the first one to walk and, and it sort of gives you a status and thing. But when they get to three and five, they can all walk and talk and stuff. So I, I, I don't think it, it sort of gives you that much kudos within the, uh, the parenting world. Oh, that's so funny. That's exactly what I needed to hear right now because I've been holding books up above his head because I just want those bragging rights. He's only seven months and he's running. <laughs> and look at his gait. It's perfect. Unfortunately, as he gets older, that's going to change based on the height and everything else. So, yeah. Yeah. it's uh, One thing I've noticed as well is I've seen massive improvements in my own hips just through – I've probably been doing yoga a couple of times a week fairly consistently just for maybe five years. and. Yep. I'd say say once a week just to be safe, but my ability to sit cross-legged originally, so I'm 34 next week, and when I was, say, 29 and I started doing yoga, I could not believe the lack of uh, mobility I had through my hips. Like the idea, Even still, I sit next to my wife who, who she sits so comfortably cross-legged with a straight back with her hands on her knees, and yeah. I go, I have no idea how you do that because I've been practicing for five years, and I can sit with my legs crossed, but my knees are probably still up a little bit higher, but I, I've definitely seen some really solid improvements in my own um, sort of, I guess you just say posture, just through that that constant repetition. Yep. But I'd been a little bit, I, perhaps at the start, if you had told me it would have taken five years to get to a, the point that I am now, I might have been a little bit disappointed. But it is something that it, I guess once you've been trained to sit that particular way, after it, it's going to take a few years to break that. Yeah. Well, it's, I guess it's a physical limitation at that point, isn't it? Yeah, look, I mean, I don't know how much running you're doing now, but maybe there's some unloading in terms of you're not running as much, which gives you the opportunity to put other things in, right? And I think this is the, the conundrum we're all dealing with is there's so much you could do, but it's which bits do I do? You know, and if you've got to get strong, can you do yoga? If you Do you do Pilates or do you, you know, recovery sessions? And there's so much that can go in. All I would say is the... If you become mobile and flexible before the age of 18, before you've fully grown and everything else, it's a lot easier to maintain your flexibility. If you've never had flexibility, it's going to be a long process. And, it, and, and you're going to have to spend more of your time working on mobility and flexibility as you get older. And um, 
I've learned that the hard way because I've, I've sort of found that with my own flexibility. And, you know, for me to get a good quality uh, session in to increase my flexibility, it might take 40 minutes, whereas my wife, it will take 10 minutes. And we get to the same place. And, it, and, and that's when you the investment in time when you're young saves you time to be able to train when you're older. So it is important that we have rounded, well-skilled athletes that aren't getting tightness. Like, like if they've got a movement pattern that they do regularly, they often will be really good in that movement pattern. Take them outside of that, they will stiffen up and it's really awkward. And if you do new exercises, they get DOMS really easy when you introduce a new movement pattern because they're just not used to it. So the investment when you're young in rounded sports and rounded movements saves that uh, five years it takes to learn how to do yoga as we get older side of stuff. And and I, I think this is just the philosophy that I've sort of I've had been very fortunate of working with um, elite athletes to sort of as my coaching um, for my own benefits as a coach to work with the elite. But at the same time, I was training a lot of young athletes at the same time. So when I was in England, I was working as a uh, coach with the EIS and I had a dual role. So I worked with the university for a couple of hours and then I might work with the English Institute working with elite international Olympic based athletes. So I could be training a nine year old tennis girl. And then and immediately directly after that, training someone who's going to the London Olympics, which was quite an unusual sort of uh, sort of daily uh, schedule to do. But what I've now seen is some of those athletes that I trained that were eight, nine now are now actually performing on the world stage. And I can sort of go, yeah, I know what they did. So I can sort of see where they're at now. And I used to work in golf and there's a number of athletes there that you know are in the top 20 in the world at the moment. And I'm like, I know what they did from a young athlete, which sort of can lead your practice. If you only ever work in the elite sport and you don't get the opportunity, what the young ones have to do to come through, um, sometimes that, that might be the missing thing of the, the specifics of where coaches should really learn their trade. Yeah, yeah. You said something earlier that I think was interesting, and I, was, I took a mental note to come back to, but you were speaking about how just some of those fundamental movements of crawling along the ground might not necessarily be everyone's cup of tea but i'm a big fan of ito portal and i've watched some of his stuff and yeah i'm i'm man just like the weirder the better for me i get so into the like the the wim hof and the ito portals and just any weird movement or weird practice i can do and uh it is amazing like the the amount of doms which you mentioned that i experienced after probably 20 years of not crawling on the ground. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the amount of doms that I experienced after my first session of doing that just was was mind-blowing. But is that something that is um, beneficial to uh, people of all different sports? Like, would you use that with a, uh, with a golfer, with a tennis player, with a middle-distance runner? It's very interesting. When I first started working with England Golf, um, I did this one session where I had a crash mat, and I thought, I'll tell you what, let's get them all to do a forward roll. And I had 12 um, international players that were under under 18. I'm not going to say who they were. And not one of them knew how to do a full roll. They looked at me with a blank look on their face saying, what's a forward roll? And, you know, we know that the asymmetry with golf is that they stand in one stance and it's very repeated and stuff. But this whole concept of not being able to do a forward roll was just baffling. And, you know, we did some crawling based movements. It really works well as a as a warm up routine. Um, because obviously it's, if you did a full hour of it, you'd be, there'd be sort of sometimes some quizzical looks about what you're actually doing, but for warm up, doing bear crawls, doing some of the rotation based stuff. Um, if you came to our gym at, at the university, you'd see there's a number of athletes that we've got that 
identified that a type that have all had this uh, practice around bear crawling and, and so that. So I think it is applicable for everyone to do a long session of it, maybe a little bit too much of a stretch, but I, as an introduction to warm up, I could actually see a lot of distance runners benefiting just from that sort of release from the, the, the lats in particular, because when the lats go tight, you tend to get a little bit more of an anterior tilt in the pelvis. And we know that that's where leaking of energy can come for our long distance runners. So, you know, it's, it's again, if you're going to introduce something that's a little bit funky, make sure that you back it up with the education of why you're giving it. And if it, if it sort of meets to the individual's needs, they give it a crack. And often it's quite a fun session as well. Yeah, that, that it is. It's definitely a fun session. I don't know how closely you follow the, the distance running scene, Tony, but do you know Ryan Gregson? I don't know Ryan Gregson. I've start, I was at the Zatapec um, watching David run and stuff, so I got to know a few of the runners from there. And obviously I know the uh, female 800-meter runners and some of the 1500. So, and I met Justin Rinaldi when I first came over, and I, I, I spent a day with oh, – I spent, I spent a training session talking to him about his athletes and stuff. And I, I just found him a, a wonderful, open, sharing coach. And, yeah, I, I, I need to do a bit more, but, again, I have – I have 60 athletes and I have 32 different sports that I still write for. So, oh wow, it's, it's yeah. massive. No, the reason I brought him up, and it doesn't, it doesn't matter that you don't necessarily know heaps about Ryan Gregson because I think a lot of the audience will will know. But he's a guy that, as a 17 year old, uh, I think they called him the Crab, like because I remember right. watching him run, and I was like, dude, I do not know how you run so fast. Like he's there's a he just looks so so low to the ground. And uh, I can't remember, I had him on the podcast a while ago and I was asking him about his, his training. And I think through a progression of his strength over the years, he, he just looked like a much different runner. And he does look like a much different runner to, to what he was. But I was going to ask you, uh, you know, if you, if you had seen that progression, whether you think that was directly through strength and conditioning. But it, it, it's not super, super important. But I was uh, 32, 32 different athletes, did you say? Or 60 athletes, 32 sports. Yes, yeah. So what kind of what kind of athletes are you working with now? So I've got um, anything from roller derby, which is a new one, which is a, a skating based sport, um, fencing, judo, karate, um, MMA, uh, rugby, cricket, runners. You know, runners in all those different other sports. I mean, I mean, it, it it literally is the full spectrum, and and they all get individualised training programs. So I know there's a lot of um, coaches that are going to listen to that and go six 32 different sports all on an individualized program um i've got my mechanisms my systems that i've actually created to enable me to be able to write individualized programs but again that might come down a little bit to my philosophy of that there isn't really uh, a breakaway too much from the movement patterns of a squat a single leg a push a pull and then just when the athlete's ready we then get into some of the speed. so i still get athletes turning up at the university at the age of 18 and 19 that have, have never been under a bar so that program no matter what your sport is going to look the same as a beginner in any of the other sports as well so it is doable yeah this is one thing i uh, i told you i loved about quinny as well and i know you said you listened to the episode so you'll, you'll know what i'm talking about but he was saying for anyone who didn't hear it that when he first got to the essendon football club he had yeah. never watched a game of football in his life yeah and uh he said that so many people were just shocked to hear that because he's just been employed as the head strength coach. And yep. people were like, hang on a second, like, don't you need to know something about football in order to be able to be effective? And he said, no, nah, I actually think it's almost ignorance is bliss. I can come in freely and confidently with what I believe works and apply it. And uh, it didn't take 
him long to to start seeing the massive benefits that um, the athletes were getting out of it. And I, I tend to agree. Like it, it is funny how just because we specialize in a particular sport, we forget that so often we have our blinkers on on what is the best practice for that sport. So I, it, it doesn't surprise me at all. In fact, I feel like I have more confidence in people, and it could just be through a few times talking to Quinny. Um, but I really like that broader stroke approach to uh, fitness as well, especially based on what we were saying earlier. It's just it, it seems like that sedentary lifestyle and that lack of mobility and movement is a really common problem amongst a lot of people, and it, it, it doesn't take long to look at a specialized sport and see they're not exempt from, you know, that, that, that lack or that inability to move their body, how it was created to be moved. Yeah. I mean, the, the thing that, um, was in the, the, the Quinny podcast when he was talking about that, um, not knowing anything about AFL, as long as you ask good questions, when you get there, you can get that fast track and, and, and you come in with what he was talking about as having an unbiased view of the way that he looked at the sport. And it's sort of like exactly the same as when I started working with David is that David is the wealth of knowledge in terms of his own body, in his own performance, um, knowing what he's done in the past as a history. You know, it, sound, it would seem weird for me to just come in and go, I know what you need. I can make you a better athlete. And I think it's probably some of the things that are, are sort of a junior coach who's coming in as an SNC. They're very knowledge based. They're very been trained about this is the particular way. You don't know what you don't know until you've been in the industry and stuff. And I think there's lots of stuff that I don't do now that I used to do that I actually have very strong beliefs in. Um, so I think that's just the nuance of becoming a more experienced coach. And and I really do re- uh, believe that if you ask good questions, you link with a coach, the athlete often has a lot of answers to how you can uh, direct their strength conditioning, no matter what the sport is. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. Are you working predominantly with athletes from the University of Melbourne, or is that just where are you? I actually don't know your story there. Are you a um, a, a lecturer, or, or what's your story at it? The no, just just that I'm I'm the head strength conditioning coach for the elite athlete program. So we have anywhere from about three hundred athletes, but obviously you can't look after that many. So they get various of different types of scholarships, and I work with sixty of the best, the more elite ones on that, and I'm I'm a full time coach there. So. I've got a couple of athletes that I look for, look after in a consultancy business outside, but literally I am very busy, as I can tell with the 60 athletes. Just, you know, there's not much space for me to be able to do other athletes and stuff. But, I'm, I'm you know, if I could help and I have the time, um, I'm always uh, willing to help out. But it, it literally will come down to restrictions on time because I've, I've got a family as well. Yeah, 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 of course. Um, I'm interested to pick your brain a little bit because you were saying about how you, uh, for anyone who's shocked about just how many different sports you coach for how many different athletes and make it personalized to them. Uh, people are surprised to hear that you can individualize a program like that. But you were, you were saying that you've got a couple of practices that you've built up over the years just to help you, uh, I guess, more more smoothly or more effectively be able to individualize those programs. Like, um, I'm, It's like story time with Quinny when I talk to him about what he does. Like, Are, are there any particular practices that we would find interesting that help you boil down what an athlete really needs or... or where to begin with working with that athlete. I know we've touched on this, but yeah. um, I guess from a more personal approach on what you do. Yeah. So um, the first thing that I would do is um, get them to, when I, when I meet an athlete, it's almost like um, I, 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 I saw a quote once that really resonates with me, which is athletes don't care what you know until they know you care. So my first approach is to get to know the athlete about, get them to tell me about their sport. Tell me about what their strengths are. Tell me what they believe their weaknesses are and also what to 
then direct me in what they feel is going to be an easy win for them to get better. That takes up about 10 minutes of the first session of the just getting to know the athlete and just to set them in because we're, we're, it's about them. It's individualized. So they get an opportunity to talk about themselves. Then I then come with my philosophy is that I want to see you move well before I start loading you up or doing anything else. So we're going to look at some fundamental movements. So I will look at a um, I used to do an overhead squat and now I'm quite happy just to look at a squat. I will look at a lunge pattern and I will pretty much from those two exercises know how well someone is moving. Um, and once I've got that set, I'm like, right, OK, let's now look at whether dependent on the sport, because obviously it always is dependent on what the sport is, of looking at what are some of the positions that they're most likely to get injured. So if it will be for a rugby player, we look at their, just the way that their shoulders might move because that's a big contact area and stuff like that. So there are some actual patterns of movement that we can look at in terms of the way the body moves. And then once I've done that, it literally is about just going into that, right, what would be the best squat pattern for them and then setting them up for success. So the early part of a, a four week program is either a movement pattern that they enjoy doing, a movement pattern that they feel that they can do that's that they've got some skill at so they can get some um, progressive overload into that area. So you've got to get some early wins to make them feel better about themselves. You don't have to come in of going right. You just giving them 10 exercises of everything that they can't do. And that's, that comes back to the relationship building and, and that's my style. Um, and then once I've got from that, uh, once I've, once I've won the athlete over, then that's when we really start saying, okay, you need to earn the right to do the advanced stuff. And I said this to Katrina very early on, and I said, it takes two years to get good at training in a gym. And it really does for you to be able to get the aesthetic awareness, for you to have the variety of different movement patterns that you need to train to broaden out that pyramid. There's no rush because in the in the training phase of getting better at broadening the uh, the bottom of the pyramid, athletes do get better in that stage as well. It's not like only the specialized uh, exercises makes them better. Actually becoming a stronger, more robust athlete means they recover quicker. That's not such a word. They recover. They recover. They recover quicker. They um, are able to be more consistent with their movement patterns. And when you talk about uh, recover quicker and be more consistent, there probably isn't a running coach in the world that says they're the two things that they would really love from their athletes. You know, everyone can get up and do a hard session. They all feel it hard how quickly can they come back and do another hard session again? And I know we talked about this with uh, David in his program about how many hard sessions he would have in a week. And, you know, and a hard session probably in his own words takes a little bit more to recover from because he's now working as a, as a physio. And, and I think that whole time whilst he was still studying and doing placement, we had to take on his life style or what he was actually had to do outside of running was having a detrimental effect on his ability to recover for training sessions you can't ignore that and that's where the individualized area comes into there so i think um my early wins is definitely all based around good movement first yes yeah now that's awesome it's, it's interesting just the role that what's going on outside the actual gym or the running track or whatever sporting field that they're on has an impact on their uh their actual performance in the gym. And I was interested because you were speaking about how, um, you know, your, your big focus is on relationships. And I can imagine that mindset would probably be a big challenge for a lot of the athletes that work with you. And do you seem to double up as a little bit of a psychologist in the role that you're in as well? Because I know that with relationships, people start to feel more comfortable about opening up on the other parts of their life. I, um, I would like to think that athletes can um, 
see me as a bit of a mentor as well. I mean, I've been doing the job for 20 odd years or whatever. There's got a lot of experience of um, athletes going to Olympics and some of the conversations that we have, I mean, it, and then Katrina wouldn't mind me talking about this, but we do talk about, you know, going to our first Olympics and stuff like that. And I've trained athletes that have gone to an Olympic, went to London Olympics, uh, their first one. And just in the crazy six weeks before you go about them suddenly going, oh, I've, I've seen another athlete doing this exercise. I think we should be doing this. It. Like, no, no, the plan was written ages ago. We're not changing. But they get, you know, athletes get nervous in and around that time. And I think that's where I like to use the environment. It, 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 I suppose what I've done with the elite athlete program is I've got athletes to to buy in and share. So it's not about necessarily me always being the mentor or, or looking at them. I actually get them to share amongst themselves across the sports. Had a beautiful conversation between uh, uh, someone from judo, someone from karate, talking about mental preparedness, uh, uh, mental preparation for a competition, talking to a fencer. And then a week later, the fencer coming back and said, oh, I put into practice what you said. And it really made a difference. I felt more, less anxious and, and everything else. So I just feel like a facilitator of that mental preparation. And if anyone wants to talk about my experience or what I've done with other athletes, I'm very open to share because I think storytelling really lives with people and it, it helps get the message across. But I know from a, a mental health perspective, the COVID made it very challenging for a lot of our athletes and whether them being students as well and in a high demanding university sector, mental health, I actually have gone and done a couple of courses on just being able to be a little bit more supportive in that area. Yeah, no, that doesn't surprise me at all. And it, I guess once you can boil down, I always say that, thank God it doesn't happen much, but whenever, uh, when I was running competitively, if my wife and I ever had an argument within an hour of me going to training, it blew my mind how badly I ran. And I like to think that I, I stay on top of my mental game pretty well and I always yeah. do little practices to just give myself the best chance, not only to just feel the best I can throughout the day, but um, especially when I was running, like using that to my advantage when I was competing. And I've got a friend who some people around Australia might know. His name's Kale Simons, who his best method to run fast, he was like a 343, 1500 meter runner. He ran 803 for 3K. Like he was good. But he used to just get himself so angry before a race. Yeah. <laughs> I would stand near him and he looked like he wanted to kill someone. And his best races were when he was angrier, the most angry, which I just found just crazy because for me, the angrier I was, the more, the, like, I just felt tense and upset and, like, I just wanted to get home and solve it. I found it interesting just the different role that um, a particular emotion can play amongst athletes. But I knew when I was stressed or when I was angry or when I was upset that my performance was more than likely going to be tampered, whether or not that was just me convincing myself that that was true. Um yeah, but just some, some real practical steps in that area was, was very helpful. But it's funny that I, I think a lot of people in general are really good at understanding the role that like consistency in the gym plays on, on strengthening their body. But the idea of um, mental preparation for a lot of us, it's just something we do when we find we're, we're feeling down and feeling flat rather than something that we uh, spend a lot of time just, I guess, cultivating and, and trying to strengthen as we go along, even during the good times. Yeah, I, I have a... Um... I have a practice. So here's one of my tips for the gym environment that uh, I learned from golf and I work with a psychologist there and it's called the light switch effect of training. And basically what it is, is creating an environment that is fun and engaging, but you also then have to be able to lift in a consistent and, and produce movement in a really good way. So what it is, is that you could be having a conversation with someone, but we often try to get our athletes to time their rest periods between sets. 
So they might do a set. You might then have a conversation. As soon as the alarm bell goes off on the watch, they have to then, like a light switch, switch the concentration and focus to be able to lift in a really good manner, do the exercise correctly, and then re-engage back into the conversation that they're in. So I don't. a lot of coaches say they don't like athletes having mobile phones in the gym and stuff because it's distracting. I actually like the distraction. I actually like them to practice being distracted and then switching it on. And that is very transferable over to any form of sport. So, you know, like a lot of golfers would um, literally, they, they play a bad shot and they've, they've got three minutes to be thinking about that bad shot. So what the uh, psychologist came out with is that when the club hits the bottom of the bag, you now have to remove yourself from thinking about that shot. Talk about something completely different so that when you get to the ball, you deal with where the ball is at and what your next shot is, not about what you should have done on the shot before. So I definitely think that can be something that is quite easily practiced in a gym environment, which is almost like switching it on on the starting line of just going, OK, right now I need to be focused. I, mean, I need to remember that next time I play golf and I've got plenty of opportunity <laughs> to practice it. Yeah, I, I, I started 2021 with a hole in one. So uh, on my first you round, did? Of, of, are you of, kidding me? No, I got a hole in one in uh, my very first round at Yarra Bend. Um, oh, on the, the on ninth the hole there. The ninth no, hole, on, was it? No, it was on the 16th. The 16th? It's an elevated green, about 156 yards. That is, I know the, I, I think I know the hole you're talking about. I've played there a few times and I, yeah. I was thinking of the hole that lines up along, like closest to the driving range there. I think there's a par three just outside the clubhouse. Yeah, that's the 10th. That's the 10th, is it? The yeah, 16th. I can't yeah, hit I... that green. I can't hit that green for some reason. <laughs> it's the pressure of everyone watching from the clubhouse. <laughs> for sure. Um, I don't know if you saw the uh, new Tiger Woods documentary. No, I haven't yet, but it's uh, definitely on my uh, my save playlist. Yeah, yeah it's uh, it look. I watched it. It was I loved it. I've got a mate who thinks it was just like a gossip magazine, which is potentially why I loved it. But <laughs> it was it was a, a really good documentary. But one thing you were speaking about was um, just the ability to switch off from the disappointment, switch back on to the next shot, and um, that was one thing that really no surprises here stood out to me about his his game and maybe to his detriment, uh, you know, with his with the way that he was living his double life. And so they go into that a little bit more. But um, he seemed to have this ability just to switch off one part of his brain to focus purely on what it was that he wanted to focus on. And, uh, yeah, there was a particular example. I can't remember the competition, but he was about nine shots down uh, on the second day of competition of a three-day tournament or something. And uh, he was in pain because he, he was going through an injury. And he's, his caddy said to him, mate, you're killing yourself. Like you're putting yourself at risk. You're not getting anything out of this tournament. Let's stop. And he uh, he goes. You he told him to f off. He goes. I'm going to win this tournament. Yeah. And um, anyway, he said from that. Con- uh, sorry, he didn't say it, but you saw from that conversation to his next shot. It was like I, I don't know level. what just switched. Something just happened, yeah. and he didn't miss a shot for the rest of the tournament, and he won. And I was I was just so inspired by that ability because it's uh like when you've got the ability to be able to act like that, there's not much that can slow you down. If you can just switch that part of your brain on that says, all right, time to operate, let's go. Yeah. Good luck stopping that. But it's also a thing that unless you practice it, you can't switch it on. And I think that's the, that's the element of what we have to understand is that we need to practice it more. We need to practice being what is our race mode like? What is it that we do when we do it? And you need to practice it on a more regular basis, not just wait for the race to suddenly find out that you couldn't switch it on. Mm. For a distance runner, what would be some uh, practices that they could do to to practice switching that on and off? 
apart from just having a bad session and going, all right, time to focus on the next one. Yeah, I think, I mean, my simplest thing would be the light switch effect. So if you're uh, a training session, we always, I look at the warm up is always very friendly. People are chatting and stuff like that. That when you then have moved from the warm up and stuff like that, that you have that chat. And then when the coach is saying, right, we're going up to that, that you actually then switch off to the conversation and then just tune into what it is that you're going to do. So if you've got to do uh, 300s at uh, 40 seconds or whatever it is that you're being set, is that, you know, you're judged by the time. And a consistent, great session will be when you actually match the numbers that you set off. But sometimes if the athlete isn't really, isn't in that, try to practice in those drills where you might do four 300s, uh, 40 seconds, for instance, try to practice race mode for each one of those repetitions that you do. Um, if you did that 20 times in a training session, you're going to be exhausted. So you can't do it for everything. I actually think the gym is quite a good environment for that because it's less of that real high intense. But I definitely think that you could pick out a, a block or a set within your structure when you know what you're doing. You say, right, on those four ones, I'm going to try and get practice my race mode of just as I get to the line, I'm just going to be in that in that race focused. I mean, I spoke to Dave McNeil because obviously I was at the Zatapec. I don't think he knew that I was coming. So as he was doing his warm up, he came past. And I have this thing as a coach is that I really don't want to become that person that, I mean, I was going there for the enjoyment of watching him perform, watching Katrina perform and some of the other athletes that I, I work with that were there. And so I didn't try to go over to their camp and pretend that I was one of the coaches. Up, I just stood there on the bend. And if they walked past, I said hi. And if they wanted to have a conversation, I was happy to. But I didn't want to break their sort of focus or their preparation. And I talked to David about it afterwards and he said, he said, no, I said, I'm pretty well trained in what I need to do. So when he came up, he just gave me a fist bump and carried on walking. And at that time, I didn't know all of the stuff that came out on the podcast about what he was going through in his personal life. I didn't know any of that at that time. And um, I had the discussion with him about how impressed I was with his performance, literally from what I saw from him running and didn't know the other bit. And it was like, Oh, wow. You just that just to me just blows my mind about how strong an athlete can be. And he must practice that. And that's where, it, you know, all his mental preparation side of stuff comes through. So, yeah, I think having a discussion with that story with David, that's now one that's in my locker that I can now share with other athletes, which I think is a is a really important thing. Yeah. Well, that's what I love about those conversations with um did, did you say, did you hear that podcast with Dave and yes, Bert Gershida? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that, that's Bert where Gersh- I learned that information because Dave yeah. never actually told me. Yeah, and that's interesting. Yeah. Well, that's that's what I love about those conversations is it's a, it's a little bit of a pivot from just running. Um, but I think that, that like what comes out of the talk of the psychology behind performance is something that I wish I had known when I was still competing as an athlete. And like you say, to, to I was exactly like you, Tony. I, I saw the results and I thought, gee, Dave had a good run tonight. And then I... Uh, I thought about what had happened and I was, it blew my mind because as I was saying before, if I'd ever been upset, like good luck trying to help me run well and to lose two close mates like he had in such a short period of time, that's a, yeah, you're right. It takes a, a bloody strong character to be able to get through that. Yeah, for sure. And, and, um, he, and I actually felt he was a little bit hard on his performance as well. And I, I know agree. he mentioned in the podcast yeah. that he, um, he said, I could have done this, but he, if, 
if you ever saw his last lap, it was stunning at how, how much he picked up. So I can sort of see that if he felt that he'd saved a bit of energy and he was a little bit more in tune, he could have he could have run even faster that day. But his, his last lap was, was pretty sensational. It's pretty good. Yeah. Tony, I know I've got my eyes on the clock because I know you've got a coach, uh, an athlete calling you in about 10 or 15 minutes or so. So I've just got a couple of quick questions for you before yep. we finish up. Yep. But uh, I was I was interested, first of all, I can still hear the... Uh, I can still hear that thick British accent coming through oh, yeah. the microphone. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, not, it's not going away. <laughs> did you say you'd been at Melbourne Uni for 20 years or you've been in the no. business for 20 years? I've been in the business for 20 years. I arrived in Australia in, um, I wrote this down earlier on. I've been at, at 2014 in November and I've been at the university five years uh, in April. Yeah, gee. And did you come over for the role at the uni? I certainly didn't. I um I came. My wife's Australian, so uh, our children were getting to uh, schooling age, so we wanted to get them to Australia before um, they went to school and stuff, so we didn't have to disrupt them too much. And uh, yeah, that was the motivation for coming out. It, it literally was we we wanted to have enough savings to be able to come over, but it just never seemed to match in until till to 2014. Yeah, gee, which part of London or which part of the UK were you in? Yeah, so that's interesting because you pick up on the London sound. Um, I've lived in London since um, since I was 18, but I'm originally from Sussex, which is a, a little small town near Brighton. So uh, Brighton Hove Albion is my football club. Um, but I've pretty much lived most of around in every part of northeast, southwest of London. But just before I came over, I was housed in um, St Albans area, which is uh, northwest in around the uh, Arsenal territory and, oh, and all yeah, that yeah. sort of stuff. Yeah. So you might, might, when my wife, we spent two years over there and we were yeah. living in uh, in Tufnell Park. Yeah. yeah you know Tufnell Park? Yeah, 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 yeah which is a really yeah. small little town, but uh, just out of probably about a 45-minute walk from Camden. I say 45-minute yes. walk because I was sick of the tube and I just walked everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's always interesting when you talk about how far it takes it. It depends on what mode of traffic you're doing. Because if you're in a car, it could take two hours. On a train, it could take 30 minutes. And if you walk, you realise, actually, it's quicker to walk than it is to get on the tube. <laughs> it's so true. And for whatever reason, I used to always get train sick. I got, I've got a princess stomach. But going underground on that chair, I always get off and I just felt queasy. So I ended up just walking everywhere. But I know that's interesting. So you were, because you were working with the Arsenal football team, weren't you? Or the, the women's, women's football team. Women's team, yes. Yeah. So let's just make sure because someone might get really excited. And, wow, we worked with the main. So I was <laughs> the women's team were fantastic. I mean, they were the best team um, in British football at that time. And that's where I had a lot of athletes that, um, from that team, there was 10 athletes that went to the London Olympics with the England team. So, yeah, I was working with them there, which was, was really good fun. Yeah, because what was your, were you, a, were you a, I'm saying footballer just to take you back to your homeland. Yep. But were you a footballer as a, as a younger fella or what got you into the scene that you, uh, that you found yourself in, the strength and conditioning work? I, um, oh God, this is, there is a short story on this, is that I was a personal trainer for a long time in London. Um, and then I had a, a moment in my life where I just said, why did I go to study at university? And it's, it was actually to work with athletes. And there was a, a stopgap in my career. I, I went to work uh, personal training in Saudi Arabia. That's another story. We need um, a longer podcast, yeah. Tony. <laughs> and I came back and it gave me an opportunity to re-educate myself. And that's when I then decided I'd go down to the SNC world. I often find that where you live gives you opportunity to the role. So in around where we were at, it was rugby and soccer and I was doing a little bit with um, Saracens just as an intern, and I then got a job working as a strength coach. And then just depending on where that situation of what sports is, that's almost what you you fall into. 
until you uh, apply for the English Institute of Sport sort of opportunities. And then you just you'll go with whatever job they've got just to just to work with athletes in that. So that's 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 how it all sort of chose my career in terms of sports that I work with. Yeah, awesome. Well, I guess just as a bit of a round out question um, to any distance runners who are listening, who are never going to take the time to go and see a professional to get really solid guidance, but they just want to improve their uh, ability to improve strength. Are there? I, I know we've touched on a few, like the the crawls or the lunges, the some of the squats. But um, from yoga to Pilates to uh, a gym strength session, are there any core tenets that you would recommend that they they start with? Right. So I wrote this down. I had a, I had three things that I would um, that I look for with a middle distance runner. There is definitely a really good understanding of ankle stiffness. So. What often gets missed out on most people's programs is they don't do enough ankle work. And one of the things that I'm working with a couple of physios with is this idea of isometric holds, which isn't something that I've ever really done a lot of, which is where you just put the calf into a position and just hold it under load. What I used to do was hold it in one position. Now we're looking at moving through all constructs of going from a flat foot right up onto your toes. So that's one thinking about things that can increase your ankle stiffness which goes a little bit against the flexibility stuff I was mentioning earlier, but that's a, a high performance one. Everything from your neck to your heels are muscles worth training for runners. So that can be upper back. Um, don't do too much where you're pushing forwards if you've got what we call a, a sort of forward tilting posture. So anything that is calf, hamstring, glutes, lower back um, and upper back, that's very interesting for, for that type of work. And, and, and I suppose those would be the ones I do. And there are many exercises that you can do for those where you don't need any gym gym equipment. You can literally do them at home. So if you've got a, a runner out there just wants to try out a couple of things, you could choose an ankle in, uh, exercise, a, a sort of bridging based exercise for the hamstrings. And um, yeah, you could do some banded work for the, for the upper back. Um, there is something that we're working with a lot of our elite athletes, and that is at the end of a session, just doing a pure body weight endurance set with the calves and just go to fatigue, which is showing that even when it's an athlete who's got an ankle injury is recovered from uh, all strength, they pass all the tests for strength, that muscular endurance at body weight still is something that, that hasn't really adapted that well. And, and I think that's a real new thing that I've never done before. And finding time just to do body weight calf exercises really strengthens up the calf and makes it a little bit more robust awesome well hey let's make this one of many if you're open to it i'd love to touch base yeah, with you again sure. in another few months and um pick your brain hear more about saudi arabia but hey <laughs> thanks uh thanks a lot for coming on tony it was no great worries. to connect with you and uh yeah i'll, I'll put this one out on monday <laughs> <laughs>